invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. I want to be able to read at verse 5 and read to the end of verse 25, 5 to 25 of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I want to read the verses 5 through to the end of verse 25. And then our text I will take from the verses 57 through 66. So Luke chapter 1, beginning to read verse 5. This is the word of God. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias heard him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on, on me to take away my reproach among people. And then our text for this morning, I take from the verses 57 through 66 of this same chapter. 57 through 66. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to the father which would have, which he, which, what he would have called him called. 
and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue uh, loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all those who dwelt around them, and all those these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard him kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. For over 2,000 years now, the gospel of grace and redemption has been heralded from pulpits all over this world. For over 2,000 years, the world has heard that Christ is coming again and that he's coming soon. But nothing has happened. And that Advent waiting tests the faith of God's people. Nothing has happened. And over the years, sometimes the question begins to arise in the hearts and minds of even sincere children of God. Is this all true? Could we maybe have it wrong? Would he actually be returning? It's been such a long, long time. And during the Old Testament, it had been continuously prophesied that the promised Messiah would come into the world, and the entire life of Israel was focused toward that coming of the Messiah. But in the, in the last 400 years, in those 400 years before the birth of Christ, in the 400 years between Malachi and the birth of Jesus, heaven had remained silent. After Malachi, no new prophets were raised up by God to preach his coming. The Jews had to be content with the Old Testament scripture for no new revelation or new prophecy was given them for a 400-year period of time. It was, it was as if God had forgotten them. Generations came and generations went, and all the while heaven was silent and life went on as before and nothing changed. Is it then any wonder that some in Israel began to doubt? Oh, we don't condone that that weak faith of the Jews of their day, but humanly speaking, we can understand their discouragement, and, and so did the Lord. After 400 years, suddenly heaven opens up, so to speak. Suddenly after 400 years, heaven opens up and God speaks. He speaks again and he speaks through a miracle to awaken the faith of those despondent Israelites. God would again remind them of Advent. And so I want to minister God's word this morning using as my theme the revelation of God's mercy as seen in the birth of John as prelude to Christ. You can see how all of that wouldn't fit into the bulletin. So I shortened it for the bulletin. But my, my theme was the revelation of God's mercy as seen in the birth of John as a prelude to Christmas. We want to see that his birth awakens great joy. We then want to see that his name awakens great amazement. And finally, we want to see that the entire incident awakens great expectation. Congregation, we can well imagine that the news of the pregnancy of Elizabeth created much consternation among the friends and the neighbors of Zachariah and Elizabeth. After all, the couple was already many years beyond the normal age of childbearing. They were beyond the age of conceiving and bearing children, and although, and although the pain of remaining barren can only be truly understood by those who have, who have themselves longed for children, but, but for whom the Lord in his wisdom, for whatever reason, has seemed to withhold that blessing, but for, 
but, for, but, 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 but the pain uh, was even more acute for pious, childless couples in the Old Testament through the generations of the children of Israel. You see, his kingdom, his kingdom would be ushered in through the work of God indeed, but he had determined, God had determined to do it through the faithful working of his people on earth. And consequently, every pious mother and father in Israel desired offspring through which the Lord would continue to work to, to further his kingdom. They wanted to be used by the Lord. And that is still so today, at least it should be. This week I received a Christmas letter from a, a dear elderly saint from one of my former congregations of many years ago. And she, she, she told me of her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. And, and she said that it was her prayer that each of them would be raised up to be soldiers of the cross. And people got, I fear that that concept is hardly understood by us anymore in our day, as, even as Christian church. You see, God gives to Christian parents children, but he gives them in order for, to be used, in order to use them for the advancement of his kingdom and for his purpose. And, and, <coughs> and that ought to be the desire and the prayer of every Christian man and woman in their marriage. It should be the heart's desire of Christian parents to raise up children who will continue to, to fight the good fight of faith after the parents themselves have been taken out of the battle and transported to glory. The work must go on. New soldiers must be trained. Children must be nurtured and trained to carry on the work of the Lord long after the parents have passed on. And that must be the first objective of every Christian parent. And it must be the task of every Christian parent to, to equip their children to that end, first of all. And yet today, we see parents, even Christian parents, not only choosing to severely limit the size of their families. Tragically, there are more than enough Christian parents within the church who have who have convinced themselves that in the economic world of today, raising a family has become almost unaffordable and, and at best they choose to severely limit the size of their family or at worst, even choose to not have any children at all. How very tragic when that is a personal choice. And then it is also tragically seen that Christian parents are so often more concerned to prepare their children to function in this world, this world that awaits their children, and, and, and the so necessary training for the purpose for which God has given children, namely to advance his kingdom. That kind of training is often sorely neglected. And tragically, godly seed is not being prepared to do the work of the Lord in the world from generation to generation. Is it any wonder then, people of God, is it any wonder then that the Christian influence is weaker in each succeeding generation? Is it not true then that by our failure to, to raise up and to train godly children, we are in fact responsible for the ever dwindling number of Christians in the world? People got, if we ourselves are too busy, or if we have little interest in being involved in the things of the kingdom, and if coupled with that we fail to impress upon our children that their sole purpose in life is to be busy further in the kingdom of God, then we have completely missed, the God, missed God's purpose for ourselves and for our children. And we need to repent about that. And then the question of Christ is directed also to us in condemnation when he asked 
when Christ returns, will there be any faith left on this earth? Have we prepared ourselves and our children to receive the Christ? And when he returns, will he find devotion and commitment in the hearts of our children? And if not, was that because we failed them in these matters? See here now in our text, the example of Zacharias and Elizabeth. They had no children, and they were sorely grieved, not because of selfish reasons, not because they, they simply wanted children or grandchildren for themselves. No, the, the burden of this godly couple of our text was that, 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 that in the family of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the working in God's kingdom now would stop at the death of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Since God had not seen fit to grant them children who would follow in their, par in their parents' path in, in preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, uh, that, that working in the kingdom would now end in that line of the covenant people. The remnant, as we heard, would continue to get smaller. Instead of being used to expand the kingdom of God, their barrenness would be the cause of the faithful remnant becoming even smaller. And their hearts were grieved and that there would be no one from their immediate family who would carry on in the name of the Lord working in the fields of the Lord. And that loss was extremely painful for Elizabeth and Zacharias, but even more painful for them was the fact that being acutely aware that the promised Messiah was to be born among them, every pious, godly woman in Israel longed for the possibility that they or one of their daughters would be the one used by God to bring this miracle into the world. And, and now because of this infertility, all of that was denied them. And they were grieved by the fact that the Lord had kept the womb of Elizabeth closed. In the Old Testament, to remain childless, deeply troubled, God-fearing couples. God had, you know the story, God had even punished Michal, David's wife, with infertility because of her sin. And I think we can imagine that Elizabeth and Zechariah must have also on occasion asked themselves the question, has God denied us a family because of our sin? Capture now with me the elation that must have coursed through their hearts when now she learns that she is yet conceived. Oh, a miracle! A miracle God had opened her womb at such a late date. In fact, God, God had caused her to conceive at an age when it would have been considered to be humanly impossible. But, but in this miracle, in addition to the great joy of Elizabeth herself, God stirred also the hearts of, of others. Listen with me again to the text as we read it together. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy toward her, they rejoiced with her. Understand this well now. Oh, indeed, we can be sure that at least some of his, this joy was for the sake of Elizabeth. Friends and family and neighbors rejoiced with Elizabeth for the sake of Elizabeth. They rejoiced with, with her. But when reading our text in its context, in the context of God's plan of redemption, then much more was involved here in this expression of simple joy of friends and neighbors. You see, you see, the joy here was not only for this couple. These people in the greater community, when they heard of this pregnancy, they were filled with great joy, but, but, but their joy was also for another reason. After 400 years of silence from heaven, the voice of God was being heard among them again. 
God was performing another miracle. Surely it was only God that could cause Elizabeth to conceive at her age. The faithful remnant in Palestine, they recognized that something, something was in the air. You see, God had promised to send the Messiah. For centuries that had been prophesied, and all of the prophets had pointed Israel to that great promise of God given already in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would come, to, would come to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And they had waited for that promise to be fulfilled, but generations came and generations went, and nothing changed, nothing happened. Time marched on, and although they were constantly reminded of the promise by the prophets, now in this particular period, for 400 years now, heaven had been silent, and their hope had begun to wane. But now, but now, but now they saw, they saw some divine intervention. God was active again in the lives of his people. God was speaking from heaven through this miracle. God was reminding them of his presence among them. Oh, they had not yet understood it all, but that God was active, that much they recognized. And what we need to grasp here is that it would be impossible for, for godly, pious souls in Palestine it would be impossible for the members of that small remnant to not immediately connect this incident with that of Abraham and Sarah. They knew that story. So do you. God called Abraham and God promised to raise up from the seed of Abraham a great nation that would inherit the promised land. But Abraham had no seed. How was that promise now to be fulfilled? See, Abraham was nearly 100 years old and his wife equally with him and she was barren. How could God now keep his word? It seemed a cruel hoax. It seemed an impossibility, but that was precisely the point. God deliberately waited until Abraham and Sarah were well past the age where children could be conceived and expected. And then finally God opened the womb of Sarah and the child of the promise was born. And God intentionally did so. Oh, to test the faith of Abraham and Sarah, to be sure, but also to clearly demonstrate that God was performing a great miracle and to show that his word could be believed and could be trusted, even against all human odds, even when it seemed to be impossible. So that story, that amazing story of Abraham, would have been well <coughs> known to the men and women of, Israel, of Palestine and there in Israel and now. And now here God was busy continuing his revelation to his people in precisely the same way. The faith of the pious Jews, the faith of that remnant had been sorely tested for 400 years. For all these years, 400 years, God had been silent in Israel. But now not only Zechariah and Elizabeth, but all of the surrounding community, as many as heard of it, stood in amazement as it dawned on them that God was once again performing a great miracle. God was again demonstrating his mercy to them. Oh, God had not forgotten them. God had not abandoned them. No, oh no, we read, and when the friends and neighbors saw how God had been merciful, they rejoiced for her and with her for God was at work performing miracles and again they began to anticipate the fulfillment of the promise. But, but they were not yet able to know what we do since we are still, since they are still living in the shadows and we now living beyond the cross 
We have been given to see the light of the full revelation. But these friends and neighbors of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they did not understand that this miracle baby would not only be be permitted to work towards the coming of the kingdom, but he would in fact be the precursor or the forerunner of the Messiah himself. Oh, through this miraculous conception and birth, they were given to see that God was still working in Israel, but they did not know that the promised Messiah was already now sitting in the lap of his mother Mary. They did not know that it would be the privilege of this child to publicly reveal him and to prepare the way for him. But as we continue to read the text, we notice that God's revelation did not end with simply causing the miraculous birth. God had even more to say to them. And and according to the text, that revelation took place on on the eighth day. On that day, on the eighth day, all of the friends, family, and neighbors came to the house of Zechariah to congratulate them on the birth of a well-born son and to be present for that solemn occasion when the child would receive the mark of the covenant, namely his circumcision. It seems from the reading of the text that, that it was also custom on the eighth day to officially name the child. We read the same of Joseph and Mary. It was on the eighth day that the child was officially named Jesus. And we can almost picture that crowd in our minds, standing around Elizabeth and and this miracle child. And and eventually the question was asked, what shall be his name? We read that it was commonly agreed by the crowd that he would be named after his father. His name should be Zacharias. Obviously, the crowd knew nothing about the holy incident between the angel Gabriel and Zechariah in the temple. And unknowingly and unwittingly, the crowd was busy undermining the work of God in this particular revelation and in this incident. They did not know that God himself had determined that the child would be called John because of his unique calling. And so they determined he should be named after his father. It becomes obvious from the text as well that Zechariah, since he was mute, he must have, by way of writing, informed Elizabeth of the holy visitation that that had occurred while he served in the temple. But before we read that, Elizabeth announced his name shall be John, meaning the Lord is gracious, or if you will, the Lord is merciful. And so we can envision this elderly mother standing among the crowd. His name will not be Zechariah. His name will be John. The crowd was perplexed. Our text indicates that there was immediate conflict here between the mother and the crowd. John? John? You're not serious, are you, Elizabeth? Why on earth would you call this child John? No one in all of your family has ever been had that name. Why John? That's not right. He should be named after his father, or at least after a family member, and, and no one in the family has ever been called John. The crowd becomes somewhat agitated. And at this point, Zacharias is called into the fray. Up to now, he had been entirely ignored, because after all, there was nothing to discuss with one who was unable to speak. He had lost his voice some months ago. And all of the conversation had excluded the father of the child. But now, the crowd would see to it that the father would take responsibility to overrule the frivolous decision of his wife. Exercise your responsibility here. Overrule the frivolous decision of of, of Elizabeth. Put an end to this foolishness, Zacharias. And Zacharias obviously had heard the whole discussion and 
And when they insisted of him to speak his mind, he asked for a writing tablet, and he solemnly wrote, His name is John. The Lord is merciful. And note carefully here, for Zechariah here makes a confession of his faith in the word of the Lord, spoken through Gabriel in the temple. He does not write, we will call him John. No, he writes simply, his name is John. In other words, according to Zechariah, this child was not receiving a name on this day. No, he already had a name, and that name was given him by the Lord. His name is John, for God is merciful. People of God, what we're given to see here now is Zechariah's glorious victory over his sinful unbelief earlier. For nine months in silence, he had struggled with his, with his sin. And now here in the writing of the name, he testifies to his complete faith in the word of the Lord. This child, my child, miraculously given by the Lord and who today has been placed among the people of God through the sacrament of the circumcision, this child is God's child. This child, my child, will be a soldier in the kingdom. Oh, heavenly days, the Lord has been merciful not only to me, but to Israel through the birth of my son, my son John. Oh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they knew something of all of this. It had been revealed to them by the angel Gabriel that this child would be great among Israel, but the community knew none of that as yet. And we do not read that Zacharias enlightened them at this stage. He wrote only, his name is John. And so we are not surprised when we read in our text that all the crowd marveled. Understand well with me here. The crowd did not marvel at the fact that, that husband and wife agreed to name him John. No, they marveled that this particular name had been chosen. They marveled. They perhaps even were confused. They did not understand that this priest would take it upon himself to call his own son. The Lord is merciful. Capture this with me here. All of the crowd marveled at this marvelous event here. Try to place yourself among these visitors, not knowing what the holy angel had revealed to the parents, and then try to put some of those pieces together. An old lady, an old lady well past the age of childbearing, conceives and gives birth to a son. The father of the child is struck with dumbness for whatever reason. And then when the child is to be named, he's given a name, although beautiful in meaning, it was a name totally unheard of by them. And then miraculously the father regains his voice. And they stood and they marveled. And that ought not to surprise us after all. Remember with me now, all of these people, they were still seeing only in shadows. Oh, in the miraculous birth and now again in the giving of the name, they were reminded that the Lord was merciful but it was all still a riddle for them, for they stood yet before the cross. Much of the significance of what was happening here would have escaped them, and yet they marveled, and they stood amazed. My dear precious saints of God, <clears throat> the Advent question that now must begin to rise up in our own hearts and minds is this. Do we still marvel at the mercy of God after these 2,000 years later. Capture this with me. The people of our text, including even Elizabeth and Zechariah, they understood so precious little of the momentous happening there in their midst. 
Oh, they knew of the promised Messiah and they knew that somehow all of this was somehow related to that. They'd been reminded that the Lord was merciful, but they understood so little of it. But you and I here in the New Testament dispensation, we've seen the manger. We've stood in the shadow of the cross. We've stood in amazement at the open grave. We've been blessed with the full revelation of God's great mercy. And now do we here in this Advent season, even here in Bowmanville, do we still marvel in amazement at the mercy of God? Could it be true that we have heard so much of God's grace and mercy that it becomes so common for us? Could it be that our Christmas celebration is no longer a celebration of God's great mercy? Could it be that we too get so caught up with the <coughs> hustle and the bustle of the world and the, that the heart of Christmas, meaning the mercy of God towards a fallen and lost humanity, that that's all but lost in the commotion? People, that as we prepare today to celebrate Christmas in just a few days, pray to God with me that it will be a celebration that presses from our own lips the question, how is it possible? How is it possible that God, in spite of our many sins, continues to be merciful? How is it possible that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in Bethlehem only for him to die on Golgotha? How is it possible that God would do that for me, for you? And can it be that thou, O Lord, wouldst die for me? That needs to be the central theme of your Christmas celebration. Then finally, returning to our text, we see that the entire incident there in the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth brought about fear of the Lord and eager expectation. We read that just barely had Zechariah written the name of the son and his tongue was loosened and he spoke praising God. It must have been a very emotional moment for this godly elderly priest. Nine long months he had experienced the discipline of God upon his unbelief and now after confessing his faith in the naming of his son, after confessing publicly that God is merciful, his voice returned. His punishment was lifted. Oh, everything had come out precisely as the angel had predicted. It does not surprise us then that the first thing he does is to praise God. And now all of those in the area understood why Zechariah had been dumbstruck. It was because of his unbelief. Now they also knew this child would go in the strength of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. And then we read, and all of these sayings were discussed around the hillside of Judea. And what we have now seen here, congregation, is the marvelous way of the Lord as he once again begins to stir the hearts of his people, moving them to an eager anticipation during their Advent season. These people had all but forgotten the promise after all these years of heavenly silence. And now we read this child and these marvelous events were being discussed in all the houses of Judea and through their discussions, they were once again confronted with the ultimate question, how is it now with our own hearts? The question became for each of them, do I still 
believe God's promise and am I still eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of that promise that all makes sense the question was appropriate for you see all was not well religiously we've heard some of that in the past couple of weeks all was not well religiously during this period of time in Israel and the Lord went to work preparing the hearts of his people for the coming of the Christ almost 30 years later we'll hear John crying out repent for the kingdom of God is at hand already now the axe is laid at the base of the tree and to each of them who in contrite heart and spirit turned to the Lord to each of them John had the unique privilege to say to them behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world it is still the same Advent message that I am privileged and obligated to bring to you today some 2,000 years later a week from tomorrow we will be blessed to hear once again of God's great mercy in the gift of his son we will gather together again and we will hear and see that God forgives our sin through the sending of the Christ to die in our stead Israel marveled at the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. We marvel in the miracle of the virgin birth. We stand astounded at the greatest miracle of all, that he was born to die, to take away our sin. That is Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas? Let's pray. Father, with Zacharias, we can only say, Blessed be the God of Israel, the Lord who visited his own, who by his gracious providence redemption unto us made known. Within his servant David's tent has he to us his people sent a horn of full salvation, even as he spoke through holy men of old, who unto Israel foretold how he to them his mercy would unfold. 